Thank you for listening to the Dead Sea Podcast with your host, Daishik Kim. This is the first episode of a project that I'm trying to do. Patrick Dayton, first person I ever met at seminary. Coming to seminary, moving from Hawaii, I was very intimidated. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be that type of student where I'm going to get straight A's, um, read all the required readings listed on the syllabus. And I was hoping there was somebody that would relate to me in seminary. I walk into my house. It's on campus. First person I see dude with dreadlocks, playing GameCube, playing a Link game. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. No, no, no. It's Legend of Zelda. Yeah, Link is the main character, but it's Legend of Zelda. But everybody only, it? nobody cares about Zelda. That's r- right, right. But that's unfortunate, and that shouldn't be the case about, okay, but anyway. So, going. yeah, I walked in. He's playing <laughs> Legend of Zelda. He has dreadlocks, wearing an NBA jersey, sitting on the floor, the house is pretty clean, but I can't speak because I'm not the cleanest person either. Walk in, only person in the house. I think our third roommate hasn't arrived yet. Look at him, smile on my face. I think it's gonna be okay. Introduce myself, and that's who's uh that's who I'm speaking to today. The jersey wearing, Zelda playing, hip hop listening, Patrick Dayton. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. And for reference, I am wearing a Rashid Wallace jersey right now, if you were interested. Yeah, all, Portland. Our, all our Portland listeners, thousands of them, appreciate <laughs> that. Um, well, the point of this project, the point of this podcast that I'm trying to start is to give voice to seminarians, hopefully in the future, some future profs, good, bad, hard, easy. It's going to be all formed by what we feel like is best pertaining to our leadership, our different styles. And Patrick is definitely somebody who... I don't feel like is the orthodox seminarian at the same time reflects very well on relevancy, things that are relevant today, um, is a lover of hip hop, is a lover of the NBA, sports in general, but specifically the NBA. He is a diehard T-Wolves fan. Go Wolves. (laughs) Diehard Ricky Rubio Uh, fan. Ricky Rubio, if you hear this, you're my favorite player. (laughs) And some of, you know, a lot of the questions I want to ask today revolves around that very thing is how he's doing as a seminarian, as somebody who knows that is going to be in ministry in the future, but still holds on to a lot of his passions. One thing that Pat is not afraid to do is bring in things that he's passionate about and apply to whether it's assignments or it's jobs, um, serving in ministry. And just last week, I think he posted a status about him being in a Wesleyan doctrine class and bringing up Allen Iverson and Dikembe Mutombo. And actually... And probably anticipating a negative response by the professor, but it turned out pretty well. Can you explain a little bit what happened? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't anything crazy, but what? Um, so I was reading a sermon on John Wesley, and my my a task was to present the information. And so in the the latter part of his uh, sermon, he was addressing the objections towards um, his particular stance, and so. When I, when I see like, oh, okay, he has some objections, but then there's the answer. I'm thinking in my head, like the first thing that pops in my head when I hear the answer is, of course, Alan Iverson, who is the answer. <laughs> and so that was my initial response. I just put up, uh, instead of immediately putting up the answers from, um, from J-Dub is what I like to call him, I, I put up a picture of Alan Iverson. And I said, good luck, uh, good thing we got the answer here. Mm-hmm. 
and I got a couple of laughs, uh, a confused look from the professor because he just sees a basketball guy on the screen. He's like, I don't know what that is. I was like, oh, uh, yeah, his nickname's The Answer. And then, so I carry on, do the objections, and I finish the presentation um, with a, a gif of Dikembe Mutombo doing his patent finger wag. Right, right. And I say, John Wesley says, not up in here with the finger wag, blocking all the objections. And, I mean, that's the way I finished it. And kind of, I mean, the reason I incorporate it is I, I, th- I just thought it was funny, honestly. Yeah. That's, it wasn't anything crazy, like I said, but it was something that I find humorous. And I like to put little, at least jokes within my uh, presentations to have a little bit of feedback and just, you know, <clears throat> some, uh, you know, a little more lighthearted. You know, John Wesley wasn't uh, the comedian himself. So I guess, as far I guess as it, we know, as far as we know, I guess right. yeah, you know maybe he didn't write his jokes in his sermons, but it know. is crazy though that you mentioned that because I think we view these theologians and these pastors, even Jesus himself, as somebody who doesn't smile, right. somebody who doesn't crack any jokes. Right. I do this exercise with some youth that I work with. I'm like, imagine God smiling. Is that hard? Is that hard to do? I mean, honestly, <laughs> I tell myself that like God has to have a sense of humor, mm-hmm. but. I can't, like, I can't picture. I've never even th- once thought about God smiling or, like, what it would actually look like or even what God would, like, sound laughing. Right. Which, I don't know, I think that's a little sad. Right. Know. As a kid, I mean, I've been told that, you know, this concept of eternity, we're going to spend forever in heaven. And since I viewed God as somebody who didn't smile, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be in a place forever where there's no fun and no jokes and no laughters, where I'm going to be forced to follow rules for the rest of my life. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a little different than my um, my thoughts. You know, when I was told of heaven, you know, it was kind of more of like, finally, I'm going to be able to dunk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All the things <laughs> you wanted to do in life. No, I mean, this is, uh, this is also... Of in the mind of probably a third or fourth grader was probably the first time that I was really like, wow, what would heaven be like? And then my mind at that time is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm only five feet tall right now. Or I, I guess I don't know how tall I was in right. third grade, but, you know, I'm going to be able to dunk on 10 foot, you know, not have to lower it down to six feet to dunk or seven feet. Mm-hmm. You know, probably wasn't reaching seven feet then, but, you know. So you're saying, so going back to your project, you're saying if Wesley was uh, reincarnated as an NBA player, he'd play the five? <laughs> He, he'd be the big man. <laughs> I, I don't know how tall Wesley was because no. I'm not uh, that far in my Wesleyan theology, but <laughs> I don't know. Like, you think he would be like 6'10", playing the five? No, I mean, I would. I I probably wouldn't put him in the post. I would maybe put him at a stretch four if he had to be something. Because mm-hmm. I think uh, the good thing about Wesley is, you know, he had a lot of doctrinal sermons, but, but he could also – he always finished with them relatable. And so, you know, even in, and I call them a stretch four because some of those re- relation things, right. They were a stretch themselves. Yeah. And so he's stretching the floor and he's stretching some theology. And I right. think that's, you know, maybe that's what I'd give him. Right. Wesley would be like a student of the game. <laughs> I think he, his pass, his assist would be on point. Yeah. 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 I can he, just see him you know, being a big man. Like you said, rejecting a lot of these uh, false doctrines, but at the same time, knowing how to pass as a big man. He had, he had some vision. That's for sure. I mean, he, yeah. he, he court vision, court vision. Uh, small group vision, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. He had some vision. He could pass in the post for sure. Right, people listening to this are like, wow, they're comparing John Wesley, <laughs> the starter of this Methodist methodology, <laughs> all these fancy words, and they're comparing him to Dikembe Mutombo. But the cool thing is, so the other day, 
I asked Pat, who is his favorite uh, Christian rapper? And he told me, what was your answer? My, my favorite Christian rapper is Kendrick Lamar. Right. So he told me Kendrick Lamar. And this, the conservative nature inside of me is like, that is not a, conserva- that is not a Christian <laughs> rapper, Pat. Come on. The, the most you can do is name Lecrae. You know, <laughs> propaganda's pushing it. But Kendrick Lamar, are you kidding me? He swears. He talks about drinking. But, you know, th- that was my initial reaction. But, Pat, explain why you feel like Kendrick Lamar is the best Christian rapper in the game today. And there, okay, so there's yeah. First, we gotta explain too that there's like there's the rappers, and then we have Christian rappers. Mm-hmm. And so guys like Lecrae, uh, unfortunately, you know he's kind of breaking out of it a little bit. But unfortunately, they're put into this Christian rapper box, right? And and that's really limiting their audience because um, it feels like it's a whole nother genre. But then we have our rappers that are Christian. Um, you know, there's a lot of rappers that claim Christianity and say they're Christians, but um, it's different with Kendrick Lamar. <clears throat> It's very, uh, he does he does something that's really really rare. His music sounds and pushes the envelope when it comes to like, you know, this is something you might hear in a club. You know, you listen to uh, songs like Money Tree, uh, Money Trees, and you're like, wow, yeah, this this beat bumps, and you're listening to it, and he's you know he's talking about the things other rappers are talking about, but the difference is the way in which he does it. There's always this deeper layer of of meaning behind it but he presents it in such a way that um you don't necessarily get it right away <clears throat> which i guess you could there's a little bit of knock on that because maybe his message is being missed in some songs but i think i call him my favorite christian rapper because there's definitely i mean he starts off his uh good kid mad city with a prayer about you know him accepting jesus as his lord and savior and carries on which is essentially his testimony throughout and in, in, in real stories, bits and parts of his emotions and feelings, and, and even more so in To Pimp a Butterfly, he's talking about this, and he's, you know, and he has a whole song dedicated to what it looks like giving to the poor when, when uh, how much a dollar costs, like, you know, talking about seeing God in the face of normally we brush off his bums, and I just, his message is deeper and, and, and really, really spiritual, and, and I see it almost as a prophetic message, um, and his message is getting out there and people are actually starting to understand it as a deeper, deeper level than just, it's, it's not just rap he's talking about. He's talking about real feelings, his real emotions, um, and wanting to use that pedestal that he has and that, you know, that, that soapbox that he's been given right now right. for good and to, and to progress this message. Um, and I honestly, I didn't think he was going to top good kid, Mad city. You know, some would say he did, some would say he didn't, but like, his second album was not a flop. It was, I mean, it was a beautiful piece of work. That's for sure. It was, it was, mm-hmm. it was something. So you got these Christian rappers who profess Christianity. Their <clears throat> lyrics are all based around scripture. And then you have these rappers right. who claim Christianity, right. like Rick Ross, right. likes of Rick <laughs> Ross, and, you know, probably has a gold chain that uh, has a cross attached to mm-hmm. it. But their lyrics, um, I haven't dug really deeply into rick ross's lyrics but right. um it's really it, it'll, it'll take a stretch to find a, some of them yeah right yeah. but you have kendrick lamar yeah who is not openly professing christianity but the lyrics at least at a deeper level portray this image of 
Christian characteristics of what it means to be right. a follower of Christ, or at least, at the very least, what it means to be a good person. Right. A b- yeah, a better person. What he's and what he's learning, and and I think what separates guys like Kendrick Lamar and you know, not to just keep poking at Rick Ross, but uh, you look at Kendrick Lamar and his lifestyle. It's definitely different. Um, I I don't I don't even know if I've ever seen him recently in the past couple of years even wear a thick chain or anything like that. Like. Right. He's pretty like casually dressed, just, you know, usually like a gray t-shirt, something like that. Um, you know, as far as I know, obviously I don't know his dating life, but you know, the rumors that are spread that he's been dating the same girl that he's been dating for a number of years. And he's, not Taylor Swift, not Taylor Swift, but no, they're no. BFFs. <laughs> yeah. Apparently they're friends, which yeah. is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, uh, and what we see and you know, he's in, he, and he's also spoken out that he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, there's something different about him there's definitely you can see it um what you hear about him is different uh, and i think people are really actually starting to recognize it i don't know if you saw but uh the california state senate actually just recognized him as a generational icon wow which i mean that's a big deal i think right. that's a huge deal shout out to compton yeah compton yeah exactly i mean he's doing a lot for compton he's doing a lot for um young black uh boys and girls right you know, he really is i mean do you feel like his method in approaching I mean, what what you would call trying to empower young boys and girls of color is mm-hmm. a more effective way than, let's say, uh, even a Lecrae, whose last album was actually pretty good right. and got rightfully so good recognition for it and was on the top of the, the charts for a while, mm-hmm. for a couple weeks at least. Which is huge for a Christian rapper. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, not to undermine the accomplishments of Lecrae, yeah. but Kendrick's approach, do you feel like, you know, in some ways, just trying to be blunt, more effective? I His... If we're talking about listeners and, mm-hmm. and, and getting how many listeners we're getting, you, I have to say without a doubt he's more effective. Right. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of that comes from his relational attitude uh, and his relational music. Is he's talking the same language they're talking. Mm-hmm. You know, the, and, I'm not, and, and I don't want to be confused by saying young black uh, men are only swearing and cursing and whatnot. Um, but most of the youth are cursing. Most of the youth, you know, desire these things that a lot of rappers talk about. Yeah. And he's not afraid to talk about it, but in the same way that others are talking about it. And not like, it's not that, you know, Lecrae is not mentioning things like that. Right. But he's mentioning them with immediately after saying like, yeah, uh, this that's sin. I don't like this. This is bad. God doesn't desire that for you. Which I believe is true. Like, I think a lot of those things, um, you know, excessive drinking, partying, all that stuff, I don't think God desires that for us. But at the same time, if you say it, mention it, and then immediately after, all of a sudden, like, oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, you know, how does that look as a listener that is doing that right now? Right. You know, and, and that's, I think, the progression of Kendrick's album is that near the end, it's all of a sudden you're like, you're realizing he's not applauding these things anymore. Um, it might not have ever been. But he's still talking about him in a real way. Right, because it's happening. <clears throat> right, yeah. Believe it or not, youth kids as well in churches, it's happening. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I knew tons of kids that I went to youth group with that, you know, Friday night, they were getting hammered. We were like 15 years old, 16 and stuff right. like that. And, and this is in even, Iowa. In Iowa, yeah, yeah, oh mm-hmm. yeah. I don't think we mentioned that, that I'm from right. Iowa. So, so Pat, I know I mentioned the dreadlocks, I mentioned the Zelda. <laughs> Pat is a, is a white male from Iowa. Iowa. Um, which city were you born? Uh, born in Cedar Rapids, lived in Marion, which is basically a suburb of Cedar Rapids. Mm-hmm. So your youth group consisted of 
is it generally was it homogenous oh yeah oh man um I mean, I don't want to assume, but we're talking the Midwest here. We're in Iowa. Right, right. Uh-huh. And yeah, yeah. If you look at, you know, population, it's pretty homogenous for the most part. It's definitely um, grown otherwise. But, yeah, my uh, my school and my church was positioned um, where really only the the wealthier parts of Cedar Rapids met Marion and the wealthier parts of Marion. And so um, I think there's one lower-income apartment complex within my school district. But for the most part uh, – my high school was a pretty homogenous. Um, most were well-to-do. Most went on. Most would um, be expected to go into college, um, be able to afford it. And uh, yeah, I, I I can only name or only think of maybe one or two people that really didn't go on to college at all. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, that's pretty crazy. And I and I think my high school is like second or third biggest in Iowa. Hmm. So, I mean, were other youth kids in your group listening to? these uh, heathenistic hip-hop <laughs> rap or were you just an anomaly no no definitely that's um there's a uh, a couple of rappers will mention this but there's a lot of suburban white kids they they love hip-hop <laughs> they do and they, they a lot of them some people not it's just eminem not just eminem okay but you know but then again also when macklemore hit all of a sudden you're you're hearing all these kids that are now hip-hop fans and macklemore and all this right. and that the safe like, option yeah yeah he's white he has a nice haircut he looks safe he does have a nice haircut yeah huh so okay so you served in or you attended in that capacity a pretty mm-hmm. homogenous uh, mm-hmm. safe suburbia but once you reached college you started to do some volunteer work right right and where was that located um so i went to the university of northern iowa okay um it's pre- it's that's in cedar falls iowa um northeast uh i think it's about an hour from Minnesota border. Um, but yeah, so the, the work, some of the work I started ended up doing was, um, in the twin, um, the neighboring city, Waterloo, um, which Cedar Falls was much like my city growing up in my neighborhood. A lot, a lot of white folks, um, well to do Cedar Falls is a pretty nice area. Um, but then you, you kind of got the opposite in Waterloo. Um, it was definitely seen as the low income um, place where the black people lived. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's never really outly spoken like, Oh, black people live there, but like everyone thought it, everyone knew it. Um, and so it was definitely, there was this, I don't know, these two cities, one um, a darker complexion, the other one much lighter and the income gaps fitting that. And it was um, separated by just a bridge. Not, uh, not even it's just kind of I think in one area it just flows into the next and I honestly I'm not really sure when all of a sudden you're in Waterloo and when you're not because uh you know I worked at this pizza place that was in Cedar Falls but like right on the edge and it's just some road like mm-hmm. you just keep taking University Ave down and then you know you're in Waterloo soon but you can feel it you're in a different place yeah you feel I mean you see it when you're when you're slowly like when you by the time you're passing where I'm working you're looking around and you know, the buildings aren't as nice anymore. Um, and it's, it's, it seems like it's a casual progression to getting, um, less nice, you know, lower right. income area. What, uh, what types of kids were you working in with in Waterloo at least? Uh, yeah. So <clears throat> one of my friends, um, a college graduate and a friend of mine started working in the Salvation Army in the Waterloo. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all during your undergrad time. This is during my undergrad time. Um, he started working at the Salvation Army in Waterloo. 
And so most of the kids that he was working with at the youth center um, were uh, elementary age to middle school age and lower high school. Uh, usually by the time they were juniors and seniors, they weren't coming as often. Uh, but they were low income generally, a lot of them using um, you know food stamps and assistance of some kind and reduced lunches at school. And so that's where uh, I started volunteering there with, with uh, him and what he asked me to do and stuff. Hmm. So, you know, working with these kids and you having the passions that you did, or yeah. you do still, you know, yeah. loving hip-hop, loving sports, loving the NBA, a lot of things that kids um, in these demographics can relate to. Right. Did that help you while you are working there? Yeah, I, I – I wouldn't say it was like some kind of magic spell that just because, you know, I walk in and they're like, oh, this guy can play ball. All of a sudden he's right, down. Yeah, instant street cred. Right, right. That's That would be amazing, but uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Mm -hmm. But it it definitely eased uh, my transition into helping. Um, so the, one of the programs I helped with was my friend and I started a uh, later night basketball open gym. Um, it wasn't anything real special. It wasn't like coaching or anything. It was just a time, you know, we're going to open up the gym for about two hours on Thursday evenings and we're going to, we're going to hoop with them. We're going to play with them. We're going to get five on five full court games going and really just give them the time to hang out, give them the time to play. Cause they, you know, they love playing these. And so we open it up to primary high school students. Um, some that were going to the center and then open up to anyone in the community that was in high school that wanted to come. And, uh, through, throughout our time, it definitely grew. We started with playing, three on three, four on four. Um, and then, you know, some weeks we had three teams sitting out, like three teams wow. of five sitting out. And it was, it was really up and down, but it was a way to market the center as a, you know, it was a safe place to come and hang out. Um, really get Charles's, uh, my friend's face out in the community a little bit more. And, you know, this guy showing that he cares and <clears throat> being able to talk hoops with them, being able to um, talk about their favorite players, being able to listen, like, you know, they're always playing, they're playing rap from their phones and stuff like that. You know, I could be like, oh man, you, you know, you listen to him. Like two James was a popular dude, Meek Mills mm -hmm. and being able to name these guys and be able to talk with them. But then also, you know, kick a little, kick a little knowledge and just say, you know, maybe you should be listening to Kendrick Lamar a little bit more. Drop in names like this, that, you know, the message is a little bit better. Ease them into people, you know, like, oh yeah, listen to Kendrick Lamar. I was like, yeah, but you know what this song's about, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh you know, give him, give him a little second to realize that, you know, maybe he's not glorifying what they think he's glorifying. And, you know, and, but the, I didn't have to introduce them. I didn't like have to force them to listen to Kendrick. He's our, you know, he's already in their ears. Right. You're not uh <clears throat> bait and switching. You're not um, giving them a side agenda. You're, you're using something that both of you love. Right. And using that as a message piece. Right. Okay. So, I mean, it seemed like trust was built over time. I mean, how long did that take for them to feel comfortable with you? Somebody who doesn't look like them, who represents maybe either somebody of power, somebody, uh, an outside group, you know, being a white male going into a place like Waterloo where, right. especially now with everything that's going on, represented as the quote unquote enemy. How long did yeah. that trust take to build? Uh, some of the, I mean, some of the kids, it was definitely, you know, right away, first game, we got to play together, put some moves on, and, you know, it was – we clicked a little bit more. There's a couple of kids I clicked with right away. But there's a few of them. I mean, it took weeks, uh, multiple weeks, multiple basketball sessions, um, lock-ins for them to really even 
you know, talk about things with me. And I, uh, you know, I remember asking a couple of times, like right away, you know, hey, what, uh, what, what grade are you in? What, what kind of subjects do you like in school? And really kidding, no response. Just like, yeah, sophomore. I don't like school. Okay, uh, <laughs> just trying to work with it a little right. bit. But a, a few weeks in, and I think having Charles, my friend there, that his face has been around for multiple weeks, and you know him being there for almost a year at that point when we were starting, was able to you know say he's like, hey, this guy's cool with us. And and I think a part of and I have a more of a laid back attitude, so maybe if they were messing up or doing something they might not normally have, you know, supposed to be doing, I was. I wasn't jumping on him right away, and I think that built a little bit more uh, a trust with him too. That you know, and I think also having dreadlocks was a nice uh, a nice piece for me, just because. Yeah, I was a white man, but I didn't look like most white people that they had interacted with, um, nor spoke like most white people that they interacted with either. And I think that helped a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now being in Seattle, where. You know, we both attend Seattle Pacific Seminary, mm-hmm. a school which, you know, we're glad. And part of the reason why we chose a school like this is because they're openly for uh, social justice right. and issues regarding race and gender. But at the same time, still trying to figure it out. It's still predominantly a white school. Right. Um, there are still a lot of internal growing pains that are going on. Mm-hmm. And you, Pat, being somebody who reflects the image of the school. Because, uh, you know, you're a white male being in a pretty um, white school. At the same time, who has experience working with kids of color Mm -hmm. who can relate to the community outside of the suburbia, white, middle, upper class community because you love these different things like types of music, types of sports, types of movies. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel a resistance when um, being asked about issues like this? being asked to volunteer on different committees, um, talk about social justice, being a white male, do you, do you feel like there are still some stumbling blocks, even with your experience working in these areas? Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's one of, one of the things that I've definitely wrestled with is where is my position that I land in this? Um, I'm an undergrad uh, studying sociology I was learning about gender issues, racial issues, um, sexuality issues, and you know how that affects people and how that affects our society and how people turn out. Um, I was it started with getting to know the information and understanding that these struggles are real, and really kind of being exposed to them for the first time. Um, I had heard about you know I had heard about these things listening to rap music growing up, but looking at the statistics of these kind of things was definitely eye-opening to me and where the struggle comes in was seeing these problems and most often i felt that me personally as a white male was a part of the problems Mm -hmm. and and a lot of the times put as the image of the bad guy and that took some time, you know. I, 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 a lot of people label that as white guilt, um, right. white man's guilt. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely times where I feel that for real. And but my me finding my place because I started caring about these issues and started being more passionate about these issues. That I was like, where where do I fit in? Then I'm hearing these problems, 
But I am not in these positions of CEOs. I'm not in these huge positions of power. Uh, right. But of course, I'm looking towards. I'm, I'm, you know, in the future, I may be in a leadership position, especially at a church, um, is what the end goal is to be. And so, seeing these problems, I was just like, "Where do I fit in? You know, what the hell do I do? I have all this information now. What do I do about it?" And that was for a long time. And I'm moving towards now a position of, of finding my voice. And I'm still not quite there. And that's where my struggle is at. And that's where I'm, you know, I'm hoping to learn more while I'm here, especially in, in, in SPU, because they care about these issues and we're, and we're growing. I feel like I'm growing with them and my voice right now. And I think the position as a white man that I need to be in is a voice of support. Mm -hmm. Um, to be able to speak out and speak with white people about these issues, um, in a a semi-confrontational way, if you know what I mean, like not getting in their face and calling them a bigot, but, you know, hearing something and responding to it in in a, in a manner in which points to what maybe they're, they're saying, they don't realize they're saying, but then also having grace with it, having an understanding that they might not be, that might not be their intentions, but it's still wrong what they're doing. And I, and I say support, a voice of support, because if I'm the one leading the ranks as a white man, isn't that just like everything else? Right. What, how does that look, you know? So what you're saying is that you you do want to be supportive and you are being supportive, but at the same time, you can never be the face of any of these conversations. Right. I, I, I should not be, I should be a face in the conversation. But I should be a background face. That's how I, I see myself. I, mm-hmm. Someone should be, you know, guys like you, you know, or should be leading the conversation. And I should be the one behind you saying, I support you. And let's, and, you know, and be in the background having these conversations like we're having right now. And be in the background with you and other leaders. Um, and being able to support in that fashion. And be able to speak out at times. But I shouldn't be the one holding up a microphone rallying a crowd. Right. You know, I can help set up tents. I can help set up these tables. But, you know, the speaker, the MC of those evenings, of those of those conferences or, or, or what have you, should be minorities that are, you know, are. this is their fight that I want to support. Yeah, and I think part of the problem with America in general is we always want to be in the front, right? We right. Want, we want to be the face of things. We want to pick up the staff we want to lead the march yeah that's me normally too yeah that's the problem when i first i was like i want to fix everything but then you know is that just the white savior complex trying to come in and swoop in right and i think a lot of these uh, people who started off supporting causes like this has kind of faded away because if they're not in the front then where can they be mm-hmm. and you're saying that the presence of the white demographic needs to be there right it just literally the presence matters presence matters i agree i agree if you go to a black lives rally or black lives matter that's what it's called a rally and you only see black faces and you don't see any white people there Mm -hmm. what does that you know what does that look to you like what does that say right why people don't support it then that's what that's what you would i would come to the conclusion is like oh apparently no white people think black lives matter Right. And for yourself, stepping into a lot of these uh, different rallies, different club meetings, whether it's a black student union, you being the only white male there, even, I mean, I'm sure it can't be comfortable for you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there are times 
that, you know, there is a little bit of discomfort if there's something I don't understand. Um, a cultural thing that being raised by, you know, in a white neighborhood by white parents, there's sometimes cultural things that you just miss. And for me to expect to understand all of those would kind of, you know, be a little bit arrogant, but also, you know, it's just unrealistic. And, but I, I definitely think that I have gotten more comfortable in those settings and it's, and it's helped by, you know, being a leader in those settings and in uh, Waterloo when I was doing those basketball things, but just being more comfortable because most of the time I've been received super well. Um, and that's like, Oh yeah, white people are here. Let's celebrate. But just, they, they I, I've been wanting at the BSU, you know, they want me there. Um, I go to a Japanese church and they, they're glad I'm there. Like they, they're, they're happy I'm there and uh, they like seeing my face and, and I, and I feel a warm welcome from them. And so, you know, it, it may be a little awkward at first being the only white person walking in, but it definitely, there's comfort that comes. Right. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up soon just because uh, if we go too long, our peers, our fellow 23-year-olds are going to stop listening. <laughs> I would never listen to anything more than 10 minutes, so we're already pushing it. But, Pat, I mean, I want to ask you, and I want to have you back on in the future talking about this because this is such a profound conversation to have is mm -hmm. how do you care about issues when you don't fit the, the mold of the victim? Mm -hmm. Like moving to SP, moving to Seattle for me, coming from a pretty traditional background, being Asian American, um, at the same time, traditional values, the Hawaiian culture, being from Hawaii, this whole feminist movement mm -hmm. took me by surprise. Mm -hmm. I thought I wasn't sexist. I, I thought every woman can get any job they wanted. I, if they didn't want to work, if they didn't want to stay home, I thought the husband can do it. There was no problem with that. So I thought I was fine. Then I came here and there are a lot of things where I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why am I sexist? I'm not sexist. Mm -hmm. But it's just coming up to those moments where I didn't understand. Yeah. And realizing I'm never going to be a woman and I'm never going to really get the whole picture of right. the oppression against women. You being a white male, realizing and you voicing it out today that there are things that you're not going to get. Mm. and being okay with that mm. and, w and what are, what is some advice or an advice that you can give for fellow caucasian fellow white males and white females on this issue who just like pat how do you keep caring when it doesn't make sense what what can we do to change anything yeah the f the first thing you know that i would tell someone that's that's wants to understand my stance and where i got to where i am is it's just it's about empathy first. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've learned to take positions that I have and that these issues are serious. These issues are real. And so when we hear our black brothers and sisters crying out saying, we want black lives to matter. Why do cops keep killing us? Don't respond immediately by saying, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? Just sit with it for just sit with them for a minute and say, why do you feel this way? Why do you have anger? Why are you scared to go out and truly listen? Take Just take a minute and listen to what they're saying. Have empathy and don't just write off what they have to say. Um, give them a voice. Give people a voice. Just have empathy and give people a voice to these issues. And if you give them a voice and you come away, I would be shocked if you came away not thinking this was important. I think that's why a lot of people come out against this is they're truly not listening to the cries of our brothers and sisters. All right. 
You know, we're, we're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to have empathy. We're supposed to be caring for one another. That's where I, I see us missing that a lot. I mm-hmm. see the white, the white community really not having empathy. Reaching a point of not understanding and having to decide, will I still support even though I don't get it? Or am I going to pull away and deem everything as crazy because right. it doesn't make sense to me? Right. You're, you're telling people in that demographic to take that confusion, sit with it. Yeah. And allow the oppressed to speak. Right. That, exactly. And I, and I think once we start doing that the, and the, the majority are starting to do that, there'll be real radical changes. It'll be really, really, uh, it'll be powerful. It really will be. The movements will be, I think, stronger when we're truly listening to each other, um, when we don't have to riot to have our voices heard, that we can speak out together and and they'll be heard. That that would be, I mean, that's awesome when that happens. Maybe for now, it just, it starts with giving a couple albums of Kendrick Lamar's new CD. (laughs) Allowing them to dissect it. I got to try to get my mom to listen to it. (laughs) That ain't going to happen for my mom. (laughs) Well, I mean, I hope to have you on again. I think it's a good conversation for us to continue. Mm -hmm. I think at least anything that we can get out of this podcast is uh, you're now going to become friends with Kendrick Lamar. Oh, man. Dikembe Mutombo. Oh, that'd be awesome. Allen Iverson, who just admitted that Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving had better handles than him. Really? He said that yesterday. No way. Which is very un-AI-like. Yeah. He's saying those two, by far, better handles than I had. Okay, okay. I didn't I didn't see that. But, dude, I mean, Kyrie and Steph, come on, man. Those, yeah. I could watch dribbling highlights of them all day. <laughs> just dribbling, right? <laughs> yeah, like, just, no, nothing going on. Just, I don't care if they make the shot. Just dribble the ball. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I look forward to reading more of your projects, comparing more theologians to NBA stars. Oh, we'll we'll do that. Maybe we'll have a whole segment on that. We'll, Next we'll episode, break down <laughs> theologians. By the I know NBA recently players. you made a baseball lineup with uh, rappers. <laughs> yeah, I did. Right? <laughs> yeah, but that'll be a little teaser for the next time. I appreciate you being here, Pat. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate being on. Thank you for listening to the Dead Sea Podcast. The theme song is performed by the Bushies. Check them out on Facebook or iTunes now.